0: Ezekiel 23. Verse 1 Hear God's Word. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughter of one mother. They played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and there their virgin, virgin bosom was handled. Their names were Ahola, the elder, Aholibah, her sister. They became mine. They bore sons and daughters, as for their names. Samaria is Ahola, Jerusalem is Holyba. Ahola played the harlot while she was mine. She lusted after lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors, who were clothed in purple, governors and officials, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her harlotries on them, all of whom were the choicest men of Assyria. And with all whom she lusted after, with all their idols, she defiled herself. She did not forsake her harlotries from the time in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her, and they handled her virgin bosom and poured out their lust upon her. Therefore I gave her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness, they took her sons and her daughters, but they slew them with a sword, but they slew her with a sword. Thus she became a byword among women. They executed judgments on her, now her sister, a Aholiba, saw this, yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she, and her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. She lusted after the Syrians, the governors and officials, the ones near, magnificently dressed, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. I saw that she had defiled herself. They both took the same way, so she increased her harlotries. She saw men portrayed on the walls, images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, girded with belts on their loins, with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like officers like the Babylonians in Chaldea, the land of their birth. When she saw them she lustered after them, she sent messages to them in Chaldea. The Babylonians came to her to the bed of love and defiled her with their harlotry. When she had been defiled by them she became disgusted with them. She uncovered her harlotries, uncovered her nakedness, then I became disgusted with her, as I had become disgusted with her sister, Yet she multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. She lusted after their paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you have longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breast of your youth. Therefore, O Aholibah, thus says the Lord God Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you from whom you are alienated. I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, Peacot, and Shoah, Koah, all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and officials, all of them officers, men of renown, all of them riding on horses. They will come against you with weapons, chariots and wagons, and with a company of peoples. They will set themselves against you on every side with buckler and shield and helmet. And I will commit the judgment to them. They will judge you according to their customs. I will set my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in wrath. They will remove your nose and your ears, and your survivors will fall by the sword. They will take your sons and your daughters, and your survivors will be consumed by the fire. They will also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you, so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt any more. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you are alienated. They will deal with you in hatred, take away all your property, leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourself with their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide, you'll be laughed at and held in derision, contains much, you'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister, Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Then you'll gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, bear now the punishment of your lewdness and your harlotries. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholibah? Then declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and caused even their sons whom they bore to me to pass through the fire to them as food. Again, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they have slaughtered their children for their idols, they enter my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, lo, thus they did within my house. Furthermore, they have even sent for men who come from afar to whom a messenger was sent. And lo, they came for whom you bathed, painted your eyes, and decorated yourself with ornaments. You sat on a splendid couch with a table arranged before it on which you set my incense and my oil. The sound of the carefree multitude was with her and drunkards were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort. They put bracelets on the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who was worn out by adulteries, will they now commit adultery with her when she is thus? But they went into her as they would go into a harlot. Thus they went into Ahola and Holiba The lewd women, but they, the righteous men, will judge them with their judgment of the adulteress and with the judgment of women which shed blood, because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God: Bring up a company against them and give them over to the terror and plunder. The company will stone them with stones and cut them down with their swords. They will slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will make lewdness cease from the land that all women may be admonished and not commit lewdness as you have done. Your lewdness will be requited upon you. You will bear the penalty of worshiping your idols. Thus you will know that I am the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, you are holy God. And apart from your Son, Father, we are an unholy people. We are these kind of people. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've had upon us. Washing our harlotries away, washing our adulteries away, and making us virginally clean. I ask Almighty God again that I might be able to handle such an offensive text, both your glory and to the edification of your people. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a spirit to receive. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is another parabolic um, passage. The book of Ezekiel. We've we've seen this before. Many of the chapters are written in figurative language, using metaphors. Certainly, we've looked at in the very beginning the wheel, the wheel within the wheel, the eyes on the wheel, judgment of the Babylonians coming against the people of God, particularly the people of Judah. uh, Here, Um, there have been previous figures where God brings fire, God brings swords. He'll actually bring real fire and real swords. But again, it's figurative of judgment upon the people of God. Um, he's using here a, a more parabolic language. It's not difficult language to understand, actually. Um, this, this I, I, I may have mentioned this last week. The book of Ezekiel, even with, the, I would say, next to the book of Revelation, I think the book of Ezekiel is probably the most symbolic of all books. But even though it uses symbolism throughout the book, it's symbolism that's readily recognizable. No one with a scrap of the Spirit misunderstands what I just read. This is a judgment passage. And God is judging his, his people, Judah, under the two figures of um, sisters, actually Israel specifically, and then Judah specifically. But this is, this is as I say, par- a parable. One of the things that's helpful when we come to a passage like this, when God uses parables, it's helpful to understand, let's just, I I promise I'm not going to walk through some of the more grosser language. I want to look at this thematically as God denouncing his idolatrous slash adulterous wife. That's what's going on. And so it's helpful to to understand the format in which he puts it. He puts it in a parabolic format parables have two purposes. When you think of some of the purposes, think of some of the parables that Jesus Christ uses, and there are two purposes. One for those who have ears to hear, which is to say the believer, and those who are the non-elect, those who are not believers, it has another purpose. For the purpose of the believer, it has, it has the purpose of drawing them to the Lord God and building up them up in the Lord God. For the purpose of the unbeliever, specifically the non-elect, The purpose of the parable is what I would call judicial hardening. It's a way that God divinely obscures the truth to those he doesn't want to reveal the truth. I know it's a common thought among many professing Christians that God always desires to reveal saving truth to everyone. That's not true. Um, God will reveal it to some, and God will obscure it to others. He'll reveal it to the mercy of some, and he'll obscure it to the judgment of others. This is... This is a judgment passage. Read Ezekiel chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. Here I am, Lord, send me. And people think, oh, it's a great evangelistic passage. It isn't. It's a great judgment passage. When God sends Isaiah, he says to Isaiah, mostly people aren't going to listen to you. And they're not going to listen to you because that's not the purpose of my ministry that I have for you. The purpose that God has for the ministry to Isaiah for, for, for a large degree is to bring judgment it's this this kind of and then he's going to save a remnant but to the larger mass of people it's a ju- it's judgment so there are two aromas to the to the to the word of god one is everlasting life to those who believe and then the other aroma is the aroma of death to those who don't believe and god has a purpose here let me read from the new testament where jesus tells us what i just said that the parables are part of judicial hardening so when God speaks in figures in part to this idolatrous, adulterous wife, it's judgment to her. But for those who have ears to hear, the believer, we tremble at this and then we reform our lives accordingly. But Ma- Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this in 24 Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now get ready. Jesus is going to talk about revealing the truth to some and obscuring the truth to others. And it's according to the will of God. When he reveals, it's mercy. When God, when God obscures, it's judgment. And God is the one that does it. I know, we, we want to have a picture of God. We want to have a picture of Christ. We want to have a picture of truth according to the Bible. There's lots of stuff that goes on in the church. And Jesus is like this. God is like this. The Bible says this. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. So we want to believe what the Bible says about God, about man, about truth, heaven, hell. Matthew 11. Jesus says this. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things. These these are gospel things. You have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you revealed them to infants. There's a revelation to some. There's an obscuring to others. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my, my, my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So there's the revelation to God's elect, mercy, the obscuring to the non-elect, judgment. And God uses parables to that purpose. I want to read another passage from the Gospel of Matthew. It's much clearer than what I'm stating. The the. The disciples asked Jesus, Why do you speak in parables? And then listen to the divine hardening, its judicial hardening, to those who don't have eyes to see. Listen to this Matthew 13, verse 19, 9. Jesus says this He who has ears, let him hear. That's spiritual discernment. That is to say, you have the gift of saving faith. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And then he's going to get at that judicial hardening idea, which we see being used by Ezekiel, particularly in this chapter. Jesus answered and says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. That is the divine revealing and the divine obscuring. Mercy to some, justice to others. And it's according to God's hand. It's not the way that we think. But it's the way that God thinks. And then whoever has to him more shall be given, and you will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while they seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, this is Isaiah 6, is being fulfilled. You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. So when God speaks to his people here, who are living like adulteresses and harlots when he uses this form, the people of God should know if they read their Bible. This is a this is judgment. When God speaks with parables, many times it's judgment. Um, again, it's much like God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's already hard. He's hardening the people's heart through the use of this particular form. So it's a judgment passage. Now. The, symbol, the symbolism, so it's, a, it, it, it's judgment, use of the parabolic form, parables are metaphors or figures. He uses one figure to stand for something else. Um, previously, in chapter 22, he said that the people were a bloodlusting people. He called the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a compound word. Jeru means peace, excuse me, Salem means peace, and Jeru means city. So it's the city of peace. Like where I'm from in New England, Salem, the city of Salem where the witch trials, I live not too far away from there. It's Salem. Salem means peace. Um, the king of Mel- king Melchizedek, king of righteousness, is also the prince or the king of Salem. Jesus is the true prince of peace over the true Jerusalem. So Jerusalem stands for the people of God. And last time together, God said to the people, you're actually not the city of peace, you're the city of blood. So he accuses his people, this is Judah that God is speaking to, so it's not he's not speaking to the Gentile or the heathen, he's speaking to the people who say, oh, we love the Lord, we're the Lord's people. If I could bring it up to the context, it's, he's speaking to church people. And he says, you're not the city of peace, you're the city of blood. And now he's going to go from accusing the people of being blood-lusting people, and now he uses these figures which I'll use the word. I, I mentioned it maybe perhaps in Sunday school or, or maybe even the, the beginning of morning worship. This is a gross passage. This is a, chapter 23 is gross. So there are a lot of people that have never read the Bible and they hear certain things about the Bible. and they, Oh, lots of crazy stories in the Bible and who would read those crazy stories? But they've never read the Bible. I recommend everybody read the Bible from cover to cover. Um, read it through. And then when someone says, hey, there are some passages in the Bible that are really hard, really perplexing, and even unsettling, and we would have to say in all honesty, this is one of them. This is one of those passages that if I was not a, a series preacher, which is what I am pretty much by constitution, I started a book, chapter 1, verse 1, and I plow through the book. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll 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 jump over something if it's just too hard for me to deal with pastorally. In other words, I don't have the skill for it. Um, I, I don't think this is the pass. This is the, the passage. But this this is a hard book. If you, and this is a hard chapter. If you know chapter sixteen, chapter sixteen, which I actually have, a, a part of chapter sixteen, maybe verses one through ten. I really like that passage where God marries. Israel, marries Judah. Uh, this is very similar to chapter 16. And the sad thing about chapter 16 and chapter 23 is God says to his people, Judah, Israel, um, your mother and your father are Canaanites. So he, he, he's, he's actually saying a bad thing about the mother and the father of his people, Israel. I think he says your father's a Hittite and your mother's an Amorite, various Canaanitish people. So it's not a good thing. And then he says, they threw you out, you were naked, you were unwanted, they pitched you out in the dirt, they were committing infanticide with their daughter, um, and they they pitched her out, and she's squirming, dying in the blood of her sin, and God has this, again, symbolic figure, God walks by this little tiny infant girl, who's a Canaanite-ish woman, girl, and then he wants her. The mother and the father don't want her, they're going to they didn't abort her, they're going to commit infanticide, and he takes her. And he washes this little girl clean, and he he cares for her. And then the text says in Ezekiel 16 that he waits for the time that she grows up, the time of love, and then he marries her. This is a picture of God marrying the church. Jesus Christ is married to his church, Ephesians chapter 5, the, 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 the marriage feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. So the... God is speaking to his wife and says, you are unwanted, you are unlovely, you are in your sin, you are dying. I wanted you. And why did God want Israel? Why did God want this little woman to marry? Was it because she was beautiful and fine and wonderful? No, the exact opposite. She was ugly and unwanted and in her sin. Why did God marry her and take her? Because he's a gracious, loving, merciful God. That's why. Why did God... If you love Jesus Christ and you know Jesus Christ, why did God save you? Is it because you're beautiful and good and holy and lovely? Think of yourself. Just take five seconds and think of the sins that you've committed against God and committed against human beings. We're not the good. We're not the lovely. We are the unwanted girl that's pitched out in her sin. And it's because God is so good and so gracious. But then the rest of us, of, of Ezekiel chapter 16 is this chapter which is so gross here is this young woman who has nothing and God gives her everything even himself he marries her he beautifies her he lavishes gift upon her and she turns around with all of this grace wrought God gifted beauty and she does this she takes her royal name and she prostitutes Herself. That's this, and we see Assyria, Israel is a prostitutes herself with Assyria and with Egypt, and then Judah, the younger sister, she prostitutes herself with Babylon, with Assyria, with Egypt, and and that's what's going on. And so God uses this symbolism. He's done it before. He re, he he um, he repeats himself. There's a reason that God uses the. Ex- almost the exact same language um, from chapter 16 to chapter 23. For the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, it's a denunciation that God makes against Israel, against Judah, hyphen Judah. I hate to keep saying that, but it's specifically Judah, primarily. For 24 chapters, God says to Israel, essentially, you're living in sin, and then he says, stop, repent, and live. Why will you continue in your sin and die? And then he He delineates or illustrates the various ways that the people of God are sinning. You're crazy. You're lusting for blood. You're you're filled with anger. You're filled with hate. You're filled with murder. You're filled with lust, sexual uncleanness. You're idolatrous. Chapter after chapter after chapter. You would think, after chapter 16, if the husband calls the adulterous wife on the carpet, which he does, he calls her on the carpet. You're, you're, you're an adulteress. You've become a prostitute. You're the worst kind of prostitute. You sell your. You don't even get money. You give money. You would think that after this wonderful husband, God, who did everything for his people, calls the wife, she, he catches her, and he calls her to account, he calls her to repentance. What would you expect the woman to do? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, forgive me. How, how could I sin against you who are the best of husbands? God. You see the figures. Does she repent? Does she reform? Is she broken heart? She's caught, dead to rights. And God, you know, he uses figures that we can understand. For the woman, for now if the woman is caught by her husband, say, let's take it away from the symbolic use to the actual use. A husband catches his wife in this. Here's what the wife is going to say. You're a bum. You've always been a bum. You've never done anything good for me. You're a bad husband. That's why I cheated on you. That's exactly what she's going to say. Exactly. I cheated on you because you're a bad husband. You are the reason I cheated on you. That's what she's going to say. Can Israel say to the husband, I cheated on you because you're a bad husband? No. He's the best of husbands He never did anything bad to her. He only did good to her, and she cheated. You would think when such a husband brings that charge against the wife, chapter 16, you would think there would be no chapter 17. You would think that Israel would say, oh God, my husband, forgive me. But she doesn't. She plows forward in her sins. Beloved, this gross passage teaches us it teaches us, Matthew Henry uses this phrase, addicted to sins. Sins that we are addicted to. Sins that we are most addicted to. It's from his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is another gross passage in the Bible, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man is having relations with his own mother or stepmother in the church. And they tell him, put this guy out of the church. So this isn't that, you know, we usually think, oh, those... Unbelievers out there—they're really doing bad sexual things, and they're really doing idolatrous things. They're very bad. They're unbelievers, and they're very bad. Oh, beloved, there is enough sin in the visible church to choke a mule. And I'm never—and I don't say this—I don't say this because I have a low view of people or a low view of Christians. I'm never astounded. I've been a Christian. What what, I'll be fifty-eight, so so twenty-six, so thirty-two years. I've been a minister almost 21. I'm never surprised. So when a Christian walks in and says, I cheated on my wife. I beat my wife. I cheated on my husband. I hit my kid. I stole something. I lied. I'm, I'm never, I can't believe. It. I'm sad. And I weep with those who weep. And then I, I labored and and, pray and How can I help you repent? How can I help you reform your life? How can I patch things up? But I'm never, I can't believe that. Why? Because I have a Bible. And because I'm not five years old. And I've lived long enough to know. The world, the flesh, and the devil is coming against the church. And the church is a mixed multitude. Christians are a mixed multitude. There are real believers in the church. They really do know the Lord. And there's lots of sin, even a real believer. And, and then there's also the tares and, and the weeds and the goats. And so when God says to them, wrath is coming, this is unbelievers. So when you, you, you see these, this, this woman, Israel living like a prostitute in as a professing believer, oh, I love the Lord, she's an unbeliever. It, it, it's so easy to say, oh I love Jesus, I'm in the church, a member of the church. Many benefits to being a member of the visible household of faith, but it's not the same thing as faith. So here we have people say, oh, I love the Lord. And they're living in idolatry. Oh, I love the Lord. They're living in sexual uncleanness. The Bible says those who live in sexual uncleanness will not inherit the kingdom of God. You could be the minister. Matthew Henry, again, thinks the man committing incest with his mother or stepmother, he thinks he's, it's the minister. He thinks it's an elder. That's why he's being told, cast this man out from the church. So it's a problem in the Old Testament, it's a problem in the New Testament, it's a problem in the church. That's what this is going on here. So the, we have the, the parabolic language, the symbolism. It's, it's being used repeatedly because Israel won't repent. Now God says, "I'm going to make you repent." And the sad thing is, the way that He makes them repent is with, um, with the sword, and it's, it's in the crucible. If I could say, when he says, I am going to make you repent, I'm going to make you know me, it's with a sword, I'm going to apply that to church discipline. It's just like any kind of household discipline. Church discipline stops the moment a person says, I repent, I repent, I'm, I'm sorry, I did sin. So there's the rebuke, there's the admonition from Second Timothy chapter 3, 14-17, then there's even the excommunication, Matthew chapter 18. If you say that you're a professing believer and you live like this, you're going to be put out of the church. The Apostle Paul says, put that man who's living with his mom or his stepmother, put him out of the church. But then when he repents in 2 Corinthians, he says, bring him back in. It's, it stops when we repent and when we reform our lives. When I say repentance, I'm, I'm also implying reformation. I don't mean... Oh, I'm so sorry. Boo, hoo, hoo. And then you're living with your paramour. Then you're committing your sexual uncleanness, but you've just mouthed the words repentance. Then it doesn't stop. Does that make sense? So we have the parabolic language. We have the symbolism. Now, God actually amplifies or magnifies the sin of his people. He shows them how gross their sin is to him, by amplifying the terms that he uses against them. Initially, in the first... And he, he shifts back and forth. He uses two sisters. Aholi, Aholia, whatever the first one, is Israel um, under, the, under the, the, um, the capital, which is Samaria. And then the second girl, girl Aholibah, um, she's the younger sister, Judah, the southern kingdom, represented by Jerusalem. So the older sister, Israel, the younger sister, Judah... Um, northern, Southern kingdoms, and he actually moves as he works through the denunciation of their sin. He uses two words. He one says that she's a prostitute, or she's um, sh- she's committing she's committing uh, uh, a harlotry, so she's a prostitute. And then when we get to the second half of the the chapter, he says you're committing uh, uh, adultery, sexual uncleanness among. Uh, he, he's using God is using. Language, a breach of the second table of the law, committing, um, thou shalt commit, not commit adultery, is commandment number seven. He's actually using the figure of breaking the second table of the law, commandments five through ten, specifically seven, to represent a breach of the first table of the law. Let me see, the first, the first four commandments. No other gods, no idols, don't abuse my name, don't abuse my day. That's Commandment 1 through 4. That's the first table of the Ten Commandments. The second table of the Ten Commandments are Commandments 5 through 10. Honor mother and father, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, that's seven. And then thieving, um, and then abusing a name, and then no coveting. He calls his wife... A harlot, a prostitute, than an adulteress. When in fact, he's really charging her with breaking Commandment one, two, three, and four. Why would he use the gross language of sexual immorality to denote idolatry, which is what he's doing? What sins are you most personally? I want take this test. If I were to ask you, what sins are you personally most offended with? Just think of the Ten Commandments. Are you most offended when you hear God's name or people bowing down to a stick or a stone? Or would you be more offended if I stole your car? Or would you be more offended if someone stole your wife? Or something like that. Ordinarily, as human beings, we think the worst sins that can be committed are commandments five through 10, the second table of the law. Just think of abortion. Abortion is obnoxious to God. We think, and I think it is. The dismembering of a baby inside the womb of a mother, it just it just, it, we think, how could this happen? And we're, we're repulsed by it. But beloved, those, those sins are not the greatest of sins. The sins which God finds most obnoxious are a breach of the first table of the law because they directly strike at him. Commandments 5 through 10 directly strike at man, indirectly God. So, man usually is offended. I can't believe you stole my wife. I can't believe you stole my car. Right? God actually uses language that we are disgusted with, and so we're thinking for the, for, for 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 people that value fidelity to a marriage covenant, which we all should, to to look and hear someone speak of a wife that's like this. We we're. we're we're so He uses the word disgusted I'm disgusted with you We are disgusted at this God takes language of sexual uncleanness that should make us disgusted and he applies it to himself and says this is your, what your idolatry is like You see we're not disgusted with idolatry You could bow down to a stick or a stone You could say it's God or Allah We think nothing of it Oh, that's no big deal God takes all worship, He accepts everything, He just has to because He's God, and that's what He does. You're going to steal my wife, you're going to steal my car, that's a big deal. God says, let me show you how offended I am with having another God, worshiping me by figures, abusing my name, abusing my day. It's like this. We think, what? You're offended by people having other gods? You're that offended by people perverting your worship? Yes. 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 Think if you were the husband and your wife is this woman, what would you do? You would be this husband. You would be that incensed. You would be that disgusted. That's what God says when he looks at his people. He says, you're not faithful to me. He's likening the relationship of the people to a husband and a wife relationship. And he says, you are perverting your relationship with me with idols. That's the whole idea. So, and I will say this. Sexual uncleanness, particularly among the people of God, but sexual uncleanness and idolatry, spiritual uncleanness, go hand in hand. When you read the Bible, people that are sexually immoral, sexually unclean, you can almost guarantee that they're spiritually apostate, that they're idolatrous in some way. So they're very closely connected. That's why God uses the language of sexual uncleanness and spiritual uncleanness, which is idolatry. Does that make sense? So if a Christian says, oh, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but they are sexually unclean. I don't know they're unclean, but God knows they're unclean. I can almost guarantee you that they're spiritually apostate, that they're idolatrous. Pleasure is their idol. Their body is their idol. um, Uncleanness is their idol. Other things are their idols. And so idolatry and sexual uncleanness are very tightly uh, connected. And at the very end, he says, and you daughters of the land, don't you live this sexually immoral way. Does that make sense? And so when we look, if we would take this kind of thematically and look at the New Testament church, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Remember, Mark, uh, it was Matthew Henry. It says, be very wary or careful or on your guard against sins which have tripped you up previously in the past, to which you're particularly addicted. The people of God, Israel, If there was one sin, or two sins, that they were addicted to, it was idolatry and sexual immorality. Beloved, there is nothing new under the sun. Let me walk through any professing body of Christians. If there are two sins that which professing Christians are addicted to, it is idolatry and sexual immorality. That's it. And we need to be on our guard against these things, this gross chapter is meant to show us this is the possibility among professing Christians. We could live like this. We could live like this wife who is committing harlotry, prostitution, and then adultery against our God, against our Christ. Is possible. And it happens all the time. Walk me through any body of professing Christians. What is the scourge? In our land right now, that destroys marriages before they even start, and when they're going, it's pornography. In among professing Christians, it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist, Presbyterian, OPC, Episcopalian—doesn't matter. Let me see your viewing history. Does not matter. It's a form of idolatry, and the Bible will talk about other forms of idolatry in Ephesians chapter five. So this is written for our instructions. There's nothing new under the sun. And as I say, God amplifies the terms. He calls her a harlot, a prostitute. But then he says, you are mine, verse 4. This is the covenant arrangement. And then he calls her an adulteress. That's actually an amplification of her sins. I was going to say this. Sexual uncleanness committed by um, singles is offensive to God. If you're a single woman and a single man, and you commit sexual uncleanness with one another, that's an offense, a, a breach of the seventh commandment. It's worthy of God's curse and wrath. Unless you find forgiveness in Christ, you will bear the penalty for that sin. It's an amplification of that sin if you're married. If you're married. And she's married. And that's why God goes from, you're a prostitute, and he says, you're actually my wife. This is a Hosea chapter 1, chapter 2. God says to Hosea, go find Gomer and marry her. Remember Hosea? Hosea has to marry a prostitute. And he says, What? That's my wife. That's my wife. God says to his church, here, you're my wife and you're a prostitute. And then we see the there's a cycle that runs through this chapter. God delineates or denounces the various sins, and then he says, judgment's coming. And then he says to the sister, judgment's coming. Here's your sin, judgment's coming. And then he lumps them both together, two sisters, and he says, judgment's coming. As I say, he takes the two kingdoms. The kingdoms divided under what king? Do you remember in the Bible? What kings did the kingdom of God split into two? I think it was Rehoboam. You have the first king of Israel was Saul, second king David. David really unites the people of God. Then you have Solomon. So one one generation beyond David and then one generation beyond Solomon, his son Rehoboam, he loses the kingdom. It gets split in two. And then you have ten kingdoms go to the north, Israel. Two kingdoms go to the south, Judah. And God says, both of the sisters. He, he, he refers to the, the northern and the southern kingdom as sisters. And this is a picture of God marrying them using a figure of, of uh, polygamy. Now, uh, let me say something. Some people come here and go, wait, so God's a polygamist. So God approves of polygamy. No, God doesn't approve of polygamy. The first polygamist was it Lamech. Was it Lamech? Genesis 4? Who's an unbeliever? A a picture of a reprobate, a non-elect. God takes the figure of things that he abominates. God abominates polygamy. Were some of the patriarchs polygamists? Yes, but he hates it. So God takes a figure that he finds obnoxious, and he applies it to his people. And he says... You're my polygamist, Brian's. It's very much like um, a divorce. The Bible says in Malachi chapter two, God, God abominates divorce. They don't abominate divorce, but God abominates it. But still, then God says in Isaiah fifty and Jeremiah chapter three, I divorce you. You're such a prostitute. You're such an adulteress. I can't have you in my house. I divorce you. So God takes figures of things that He hates and he applies them to his church. Your are polygamous wives. I divorce you because you're so unclean with idols. Now, God never remarries another woman. He divorces his wife. He brings her to repentance, and then he restores the marriage. Divorce in Hebrew is to send away. He sends her away. He chastises her, and then he, he restores the union and the fellowship, the communion, uh, the, the fellowship. So God uses all these figures He does use the polygamy figure to show the woman how obnoxious she's acted. We spoke about the division. A couple of things here. I don't want to go too long. So he keeps mentioning Egypt. First, the older sister, Israel, she learned her idolatry in Egypt. Remember the people of God lived in Egypt for 430 years. And they learned a lot of things in 430 years. They they learned to worship like pagans. So the people of God became essentially pagans they loved the worship of egypt why did they love the worship of egypt because it titillates the flesh it appeals to the flesh this is why this is a colossians 2 like 14 to the end of colossians chapter 2 the worship that god accepts is the worship that he prescribes in the bible that's it no man made inventions no 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 extra smells no extra be- whatever god says he accepts that's what he accepts but here's what the flesh says. Well, we don't want what God wants. We want dancing women. We want dancing men. We want wine. We want Mary. This is what we want. And then God will accept what we want. And God says, no, this is what your worship is to me. This. You think, wait a minute. I like it. Of course you like it. You have dancing women, dancing men, wine, women, and song. Of course you like it. God hates it. Now, th- this principle comes into the church now. You can find people dancing in lycra bodysuits, and they love it. And especially the guys love it. When the girls dance in lycra bodysuits, you think, well, who, where would they do that? I've been in churches where they do this. You have the 17 to the 20 year old girl dancing around in a skin tight bodysuit, and they're going, hey, we love this. Of course you love it. Because it titillates the flesh, and God says, I find it obnoxious. And they learn this from the pagans. And we learn a principle bad company corrupts what? good good morals. But bad company corrupts good worship. And we, we we see how... Have you ever wondered why, if you have a little kid, if you have a little kid and you say one bad word, the kid could be in the cellar fixing, I don't know, a bike. But he hears the mother drop a pork chop upstairs, three three flights of stairs away. She drops a pork chop. She says a bad word. The kid... Is a mile away. And what is he? Mama said a bad word. And that is ingrained in that little kid forever, right? Have you ever wondered why? Bad examples are so man, we absorb that. And good, good teaching, good worship, good morals, you have to beat it and beat it and reteach it and reteach it. And the kid's like, What are you talking about? One appeals to the flesh, and one is a work of grace. That's the difference. That's why paganish religion is so easily transferable. That's why sin is so easily transferable. It's flesh to flesh. It's easy-squeezy. Every one of us remembers all the filth that we lived in perfectly. But if I ask you what we preached on this morning, huh, Bible, I don't know. What about the Bible? Because that has to be received by a gift of God. One is flesh to flesh. The other is grace. So we have here... The, the, the sister learns in Egypt, and then what does the sister do? She teaches her other sister, and she's worse than the other sister. And then God says essentially to them both, and judgment's going to come. and you're, no, you're not going to be an adulteress anymore. you're not going to be a prostitute anymore. then you will know that I am the Lord." Well, how is he going to do that? chapter 22 tells us he's going to scatter a portion of Judah off to Babylon, Babylon to be slaves. He's going to take the rest of the people. He's going to scoop them up in a pot. He's going to bring the Babylonians, and they're going to kill them all. And God's going to save a remnant. And you think, he is going to bring the death penalty on these people for committing idolatry? Yes. What's the penalty for being a prostitute? What's the penalty for being sexually unclean? What's the penalty for being adulterer? What's the penalty? What's the penalty for idolatry? What is it? The Bible penalty. I don't... We should not care what the world says is right and wrong. This is, this is J.C. Rowell. We should not care what the world says is right and wrong. We shouldn't care what the world says about Jesus. We shouldn't care what the world says about God, heaven, hell, right, wrong, none of it. We should only care what the Bible says, what God says. God says, I hate idolatry. It's committing spiritual adultery. in even this chapter... As frightening as this chapter is, there's still grace here. We're not at chapter 24. The, the sword has not come. This, there's still time to, to, to do Ezekiel chapter 18. Why will you Why will you die? Repent and live. Turn and live. Look to me and live. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, little children, keep yourself from what? Idolatry. Now, here's my question that I promise I'll shut up. What happens if you're an idolater? What happens as a Christian? Should I read it? Yeah, maybe I'll read it. Ephesians 5. Because we think, well, I'm not bowing down to a stick or a stone. I hope you're not. I hope you're not. I bow down to, st- to, to sticks. I bow down to statues. In my, my former, I bow down to a statue of the Virgin Mary, bow down to a statue of St. Joseph, bow down to a statue of St. Patrick. I bowed down to statues my whole life. So you may say, I don't bow down to statues. I did. But you have other idols. What about those things? Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved you. Gave himself up for us in offering a sacrifice to God. Fragrant aroma. Now listen. Remember I said the sins which are especially addicted are immorality and idolatry. Beloved, I'm not in heaven yet. You're not in heaven yet. Sexual immorality is destroying the Christian church destroying. If a guy comes into my church, the, the office, and says, I'm having a problem with my marriage, it's one or two things. He's super angry and frustrated with work, or he's committing sexual uncleanness. It's that. One or two things. I don't have to be a rocket scientist. I don't know about women. I do know about, about guys. It's this, and it's idolatry. But immorality or impurity or greediness, how about chasing almighty dollar greediness? Must not even be named among you as proper as the saints. Nor must there be filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. But rather, giving thanks, for you know this with certain that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. All of those things are idolatry. If someone says, "Well, I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not watching porn. I'm not doing these things. But I'm chasing Almighty uh, the Almighty Dollar." You're an idolater. Watch. People bow down to what their God is. My super health, my super family, my super this, my super that. That's your God. That's your idol. And the Bible says, keep yourself from idols. Because anything that we give ourselves to, the main thing, that's our God. And the only one that we are to give ourselves to, body and soul, is our husband. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if if I... What happens if we've failed? What happens if we as Christians are committing these sins? What do we do? That's why I had our brother read Psalm 51 or Psalm 32. David was an idolater and David was an adulterer. And what's the recourse when we're Christians? We go, oh, this is me. What's the recourse? Thou son of David, have mercy. Will Jesus commi- forgive us if we've committed adultery against him? Will he? Will he? If you've been unclean in your thoughts, and your words, and your deeds, and you say, thou son of David, Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, will he? He will. Beloved, we live in strange times. The world of flesh and the devil, the church is a mixed multitude, and we have the corruption of the flesh. Little children, keep ourselves from idols. Stay close to Christ. Stay in the word. Stay in prayer. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word. Look,